0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles, the Book of Ephesians. We continue making our way through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. We're in chapter four. This evening, we look at verses twenty-four, uh, twenty-five until chapter 5 and verse 2. And so let's listen carefully and worship the Lord in the way that we give good attention to his word. Read and preached this evening, Ephesians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for that life which you have given us by your spirit through this blessed word, even eternal life, and your beloved Son. Father, as we come to the word now, we ask you would uh, bless us by that same Spirit coming to us and working in our hearts that we might receive that word in truth. O Lord, enlighten our minds to understand it. Indeed, open up the eyes of our hearts that by faith we might lay hold of these precious truths which are before us. Grant, O Lord, that we might find it a joy to believe and to obey all that you would teach us this evening. Work in us that which will please you by the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, dear Christian, I wonder uh, how much time you spent picking out the clothing that you were going to wear to church on this Lord's Day. How much time did you spend in front of the mirror, making sure that it looked just right? I imagine for some of you it's probably probably not much time at all. Others maybe spend a bit more time thinking about that. And I'm not saying it's it's right or wrong whether you do or you don't. but we are all called to think uh, very deeply about that spiritual clothing that we are put putting on. You recall that last time we saw that that uh, Christian obedience, the obey to the duty to obey, is an indispensable part of the truth of the gospel. We, we are called as God's covenant people. We who are the the Israel of God. We were reminded that we are no longer then to walk as the Gentiles. So I suppose the question then is not, not simply, what are you putting on? The question for us this evening is, how are you walking? Maybe even more importantly, with whom are you walking? We are not to walk as the Gentiles do because we are not as the Gentiles. We are not alienated from the life of God. Remember how we saw that they are, they are without God. They are lost in futility, depraved minds hardened hearts out of which flow all manner of sinful conduct. But we are not as they are. We are Christ learners by the Spirit. We, 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 we were reminded that we are being recreated after the image of God by the Spirit in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Created after the image of the God with whom we are called to walk. And so what are we to do? Remember, children, we are to— uh, We're to discard that filthy clothing, and we're to put on our new clothing, put off the old, put on the new. Well, in a sense, all Paul does now is he kind of fills out the details in terms of what that new clothing is to look like, what the old clothing, which is to be discarded, looks like. Of course, this is not about dressing ourselves only externally. This is far more important than that. This is, Paul was taking up matters that speak to what's underneath the exterior, the heart. What do we look like on the inside? These words really speak to our motive, our motives, don't they? What is it that motivates you to put on what you put on, or what is it that 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 motivates you that is to put off the old self and put on the new? What is your goal? Is it a God-centered goal? Is it oriented towards that great goal of, of glorifying God, glorifying and blessing your God and blessing his people? Most importantly, I would say, does it, does it flow out of that which God has done, what God does for you in Christ is your heart, uh, the disposition of your heart, according to what God's own heart is for you Dear Christian, I believe our passage this evening speaks to all of the questions I'm asking here. I want to approach the, the text somewhat topically this evening. I state our message this evening simply like this, that the, the Christian walk is a walk of, of imitating God, pleasing Him, uh, imitating God and pleasing Him while blessing His people. And so we'll consider the three parts to that statement for our three points this morning. Imitating God, blessing him, and blessing his people. So let's jump into it there. Consider first then how the Christian walk is a walk of imitating God. Imitating God. I have two subpoints for this first point. The first is that that God is love, and secondly, that God has shown us that love in the cross. Of Jesus Christ, we are to imitate God. We see that in chapter five, in verse one, those words: "Be imitators of God." So, be imitators of God, and then we're told uh, that they we're given that verse two command: "Walk in." Love. Now that, that, that word walk uh, uh, links back to the previous chapter, what we saw way back in chapter four, verse 17. The command, you must no longer, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk as the Gentiles, but walk in love. I think we can say that this entire section really is about, uh, is all about God imitation. It's all about how to walk. And part of the reason I wanted to start on this point of of God imitation, if we can really think about this, it, I think it helps us to set these commands in the context of gospel grace. We don't want to approach these in a sort of legalistic way and see the commands as a, a means of working our way into God's favor. That's not at all what's going on here. The, 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 the command to imitate God must be out of God's grace, that grace whereby we've been brought out of our sins and brought into fellowship with God. We know what God's like. We are one with God. And in fellowship with God, which status which we enjoy, not at all on the basis of anything we've done, but despite our sins. And it says we live in the fellowship with God that we then take on the character of of God. But this is amazing grace, isn't it? Of course, all of the grace of God is amazing, but the particular grace that Paul focuses on in these words here is the grace of adoption, right? Don't miss those words in verse 1. We are to be imitators of God as God's beloved children, as beloved children. How is it possible, dear Christian, for you to imitate God? Well, you're a child of God, a child of God. How is it possible for you to walk in love? Well, you're to walk in love as those who are loved by God, as his beloved children. What great love! Doesn't the Apostle John tell us that in 1 John chapter 3? Oh, what 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 great. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Think about it this evening. It's it's unfathomable. It's love that mounts up to the heavens. What great love, love so great that we should be called children of God. And that, friends, is why we are to imitate our God. He has become our Father, we can imagine ourselves like little children who are finding it a joy, a delight to to resemble our Father. I wonder if any of the children here have ever done what I did when I was. I remember as a, a little boy, stood in front of the mirror and dressing myself up again in in, in my daddy's clothes. I remember standing in. His big shoes. Have you ever done that? You can imagine yourself, you know, standing in those shoes and maybe tying that tie around the neck and it, it uh, hanging down to the floor. You look a little bit res- ridiculous, but you're finding it a joy to, to dress up like your daddy. You want to look like your daddy. Well, in a sense, that's what, what, what our God calls us to do. Our father calls us to dress up like him, resemble him, though not physically. You children who have been working on the, uh, the children's catechism, you know, know very well that God is a spirit. He does not have a body like we do. That's why we can't see him, but he can always see us. But we're talking about spiritual clothing. So what kind of clothing do we put on spiritually to resemble our heavenly father? Well, I suppose the short answer is we put on love. God is perfect love. And we might ask, well, well, what what exactly does that love look like? Well, here again, the most important thing we can look to, the fundamental thing we look to is we look to Christ. we look to the cross. that's our second subpoint for our first point that God's perfect love is demonstrated at the cross five uh, two says, "Walk in love as Christ loved." us and gave himself up for us. And so, God imitation. Then, first and foremost, we need to see that God imitation is Christ imitation. If you back up a few verses to, to 432, what does it say? Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's true that that God is not a, God is a spirit. We cannot see God. But in Christ, we remember that God became true man. And God showed that perfect love in laying down his life for us so that we might be forgiven. Just think on that. I think that the best remedy for legalism this evening is to to fix our eyes upon Christ and just think what it cost him for us to become God's beloved children, to think how much God has loved us in Jesus Christ. Remember this evening, your constant need— of forgiveness, right? Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The reason you continually forgive one another is because you live with the continual reminder of your need of forgiveness from God and he lavishes it upon you. You are forgiven in Christ and your obedience then flows out of that. It flows out of your relationship with Christ, your union with Christ, which is yours. It's out of that new life that you walk in newness of life, living his life. And so the clothing you put on then is is Christ himself. We are to to clothe ourselves with Christ. In fact, Paul writes that, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But we might ask, what does Christ's clothing look like? Well, I think he really spells that out for us, doesn't he? Look up at At at, uh, chapter 4, verse 25, I think here's Paul, He's, he's given the command, put off the old, put on the new, and then he gets very specific about just what is the old and the new. Verse 25 says, then having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So there's the old, put off falsehood, put on truth. The reason I had a site where what we did this evening from the Heidelberg Catechism is, is because this command to, to, to study and preach and teach pointedly the Ten Commandments is because I think we see that done for us in Paul's epistle, particularly here. I think the putting off of the falsehood, putting on the truth is sort of an exposition of the ninth commandment, isn't it? About not bearing false Testimony, obedience to God's law. The commandments is God imitation. The law is a revelation of God's own character. The verses before us this evening focus on largely the ninth, but also I think the sixth and the eighth commandments. So verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here again, we're we're putting off and we're putting law on. What are we putting off? Sinful anger, unrighteous anger. We put on the opposite of that, I suppose. You know, there's an anger that is legitimate, good anger. It's good for us to be angry about sin as we see it, and we deal with that. But we ought to be angry only as our Lord was angry, with righteous anger. But there we have the sixth commandment. You shall not murder unrighteous anger towards a person. It really is a, a cause of murder. It's murder in the heart. we see the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We put off stealing, we put on giving, generosity, working so that we might have something to give. And then verse 29, I think, Brings out more ninth commandment exposition, the use of the tongue. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So put off corrupt speech and put on godly speech, edifying speech. And then as we jump down to verse 31, we see, I think, the the sixth and the ninth commandments kind of come together as one. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put those things off, you see. And what what are we to put on by way of replacing those things? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, god Imitation, what is God like? God is kind, God is tender-hearted. And I think that word tender-hearted is a, a a great word, a particularly helpful word on which to meditate as we think about God imitation, because it speaks to the heart, doesn't it? Again, God imitation is it's not about external conduct. It's not about what's on the outside. It's about the heart, the motives the desires. What is your heart like this evening, brothers and sisters? What is your heart like, first and foremost, towards the Lord? That's such a good question to ask as we, we move from our first point to our second point about the Christian walk. It's a walk of God imitation, and it's a walk of pleasing God, walking with a desire to please the Lord. 2 subpoints for the second point— A life of pleasing God involves not grieving his spirit and then offering him worship. So first, not grieving God's spirit. Let's think about that command we see in verse 30 there. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. We might stop and ask ourselves, which of the Ten Commandments is that command an exposition of? What would we say? It may be the first commandment, right? No other gods. I really think those words kind of speak to, to all of the commandments of God. If you think about it, the, the, the Holy Spirit, God has given us his Holy Spirit in order to sanctify us and conform us to all of the obedience of God's commandments, or really to conform us to Christ and his obedience to all of God's law. Now, as, as we see that that verse continues, what, what we see here, what we learn, we're reminded of wonderfully is that that true believers, every true believer has been sealed with the Spirit of God, with his Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. Uh, that means, I believe, that that the Holy Spirit preserves us, the Spirit guards us and keeps us in Christ until the day of our redemption, until the day when our redemption is complete and we receive the, the fullness of our inheritance in glory. Now, until that day that the Holy Spirit is at work to sanctify us, make us more holy. But but true believers can, as we well know, we can act contrary. We can act against the work of the Spirit. Indeed, that is what we do every time we sin. Praise God that when we do sin and we're truly in Christ, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit leaves us. No, He He preserves us, He continues to preserve us. But we know one thing that He does do. He grieves. He grieves over our sin. And so we're commanded here. Don't cause the Holy Spirit to grieve. Just think about that, brothers and sisters. To think that when we sin, we cause the Holy Spirit to grieve. That ought not to cause us to grieve. To the extent that such does not cause us to grieve, something's not right spiritually, right? Blessed are those who mourn. We ought to mourn over our sin and mourn over it particularly because we know how much it hurts our God. His Spirit grieves. We need to I think grow in, in in terms of what it means to be tender hearted toward the spirit. May your heart and my heart be broken unto Christ a bit more fully this evening as we as we think about that, but speaking of the heart, those words do not grieve the spirit. The wonderful thing about those words is the way they they reveal the the heart of God don't they? Why is it that God is himself so grieved when we sin? Of course, God is rightly zealous for his own glory, and when we, we fail to, we we sin, we fall short of his glory, we fail to give him glory, and that's not right. But God is also grieved because of his love for us. You know, God 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 is Warm and tender-hearted towards us, God is not a God who is cold. He's not one who kind of gives us good gifts reluctantly, despite how he really feels about it. You know, with a, a grimace of disdain on his face, bitter resentment in his heart. No, God is a God whose whose heart is pure and pure love, and He loves us and He wants the best for us. And he knows that sin is not good for us. It hurts us just as it hurts him. And so that's why he grieves. He grieves indeed from the heart. And the obedience which he desires from us is obedience from the heart. He desires obedience that is not merely external. He desires truth within. He desires that we love him the way he loves us. And he loves us with all of his heart, hearts that desire, desire not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but to please the Holy Spirit, to please God by the power of his Holy Spirit. And he desires that we desire to do in so doing to offer him worship. That's our second subpoint: The Christian walk pleasing God is a walk of worshiping God It's an act of worship. Look again at chapter five, verse two. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice. To God, the walk of Christ all the way to the cross was a, a life of worship, and he He offered himself as an act of worship in all of his obedience, but especially as his obedience culminated at the cross isn 't that amazing? I suppose it 's something of a a mystery, something of a a paradox there because we know that on the other hand, it was at the cross where Jesus became the object of god 's great Displeasure, even the wrath of God, was on him as he was judging us for for our for our uh, the sin the judgment we deserve for our sins, and yet to think at the same time that this was the supreme act of worship with which God was well pleased a fragrant offering indeed, a sacrifice to God. Note by the way how Christ so wonderfully fulfills the Old Testament typology, right? The reason that those, those Old Testament sacrifices were pleasing to God, a fragrant offering pleasing to God, is because of the way they pointed forward to that pleasing obedience, the sacrifice of Christ. Glorious, God-pleasing obedience. Praise God for it. And it was obedience which, which was from the heart. What is it that motivated Christ? He obeyed for the purpose of glorifying God, pleasing him, uh, of course, ultimately this was this was God directed worship, but he also pleased God by loving us. It's wonderful the way we see in verse in five two both the the vertical as well as the horizontal dimension there, right Walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, brothers and sisters, what is it then in this context? What is the worship which God desires that we give to him? Obviously, God is pleased when we worship him directly, even when we're all alone, right? But in this context, he desires us to worship him, to bless him by blessing his people. This is our last point this evening about the Christian walk. It's a walk of blessing God's people. I, I Once again, I, I delineated two subpoints in my outline here, but we're going to treat it all together here. But blessing God's people, uh, we're called to bless God's people by loving one another with Christ's love and by building one another up in love and in unity loving each other with the love of Christ, building one another up in love and unity. Just think on that word unity. Earlier, I left part, I left off the last part of, of verse 25, but if you look at it there again, verse 25, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of, of one another, you know that 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 command uh, flows out of our union with Christ, as those who are in christ we 're united with him, and we 're united to one another, we are members of one another. You know, we think about that, the 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 golden rule, how we are to treat our neighbor. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you're one with your neighbor, then you are loving yourself as you love your neighbor. But what an important commandment that is, right? Jesus called that commandment second only to the great, love the Lord your God with all that you are, first commandment. And isn't it beautiful, again, the way the We see the commandments, the law of God in the life of the believer. Not only is it not to be cast aside, but it really is taken to a whole new level as we enjoy the fullness of God's revelation of his grace. Yes, this text wonderfully guards against legalism, but it also guards against any form of antinomianism. Antinomianism meaning being anti-law. You know we are we are not law uh, against the laws if the gospel is sort of a a license to forget about the commandments and live in sin. These verses, I think, really make it clear that we have an even greater duty to keep the law given the fullness of, of the revelation of God's grace, in the death and resurrection of Christ indeed in this this new covenant age i think we can say that the, the the that the law it takes on a newness as it's fulfilled in Christ as it's fulfilled in Christ for us and we receive it from the hand of Christ we think about how the command to to walk in love as Christ loved us, that really ought to call to mind, I think, the words of our Lord, where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. John chapter 13, verse 34. The love that we show now is always patterned after the cross, the fullness of the revelation of God's love thereby brings a greater duty, which we have to love one another with that love, with the power and the grace of Christ. We, we have the fullness of the Spirit, and where does the Spirit reside? But in our hearts, we're told that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And yes, then that calls for loving according to the commandments we see in this text. Certainly calls for obedience to the ninth commandment, right? We're not to bear false witness because we have the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Ask yourself this question. Has Christ lied to you? Did he lie to you when he went to the cross for you? Has he lied to you in saying, if you come to me, I will give you eternal life. You are mine. I am yours. You are mine forever and ever. Is it all a big lie? Of course not. Perish the thought. How then could you ever lie to your brothers and sisters with whom you've been united as members of Christ? Has Christ ever stolen from you? What does Paul say? Christ loved us, and he gave. He didn't take. He gave himself for us. Indeed, he's, he's given us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit assuring us that he will give us all that he has promised, even our full redemption, our inheritance in glory forever. How could we then turn around and go and steal? Steal from one another, do, doing the opposite. No, we're to do the opposite of stealing. Note again those words in verse 28. It is interesting there when Paul talks about the purpose of work. He doesn't even mention earning for yourself, right? Of course that's a, a purpose. We have a duty to work so as to be able to provide for ourselves and certainly to provide for our families. But it's like it's even more than that. It's like the, the, the thief has been transformed by the grace of Christ, and now he's going to work out of a motive to get something so that he can do what? Give it away, we might think of Zacchaeus as the great example of this. Lord, I give all. I, I was a, a, you know, a cheat, a tax collector who stole, but now I'm giving away all my possessions to the poor. That's the grace of Christ. That's the new life. Did Christ come to murder us? Actually, did Christ come and murdered it? Well, you know, murder is the unlawful taking of life. Christ quite rightly, could have properly carried her out, the, the execution, the sentence of death, because of all of our sins. But no, he came to give life. And again, look at, look at Paul's words in verse 31, and just think about the heart of Christ. You know, was, was our Lord filled with bitterness, wrath, and anger? Was there clamor? Was there loud quarreling spewing forth from his mouth? Did Jesus go about slandering his neighbor? No, he did the opposite. He he went to the cross so that all of our faults could be covered over. We'd be covered over in his righteousness. Our sins washed away. Of course not. And that's why there must be none of those things here, Paul mentions, among you. Put them all. Put on the new By the grace of Christ, that's our duty, brothers and sisters. We're to to hold text like this before us as we think of of ourselves standing in front of the mirror, as it were, putting off the filthy, putting on the new, the clean. We're not, you know, looking at ourselves and saying, look at me. (laughs) How do I look? We're we're humbling ourselves before the Lord and we're asking him, how can I put on? How can I put in? How can I— Uh, be sanctified such that I can bless my brothers and my sisters. May my heart be filled with thoughts of love and of grace. My heart, you know the thing about those words, tender-hearted, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. They remind us, of course, that that even even the, the forgiveness we extend, it should not simply be an outward act. You can be sort of annoyed, all right, fine, I forgive you. When God forgives us, it's not that he says the words, but he remains annoyed with us in his heart. No, he forgives from the heart, and that's the way we're to forgive one another, from the heart. Words without corruption, that, uh, words that are, are calculated to, to love, to build up, to impart grace according to the particular occasion, grace to those who here, that's what it is to clothe ourselves in Christ. To do anything less, to do otherwise, is to grieve the Spirit. But think on this, think of that positively. To do that is to please the Spirit. God the Spirit, just think about that. God the Spirit, the Spirit who is jealous for you, who, the one who grieves when you sin, the, the, the Spirit desires to bless your brothers and sisters, and he desires to bless them through you as you put on your spiritual clothing even even through your thoughts certainly actions words and even your thoughts because they move you to pray for your brothers and sisters and just think about this i'm going to just end on this the command we see in verse 27 to give no opportunity to the devil that follows paul's words about not letting the sun go down on your anger of course anger is very very dangerous isn't it or i should say unresolved, or anger that's not been dealt with. You leave anger not properly dealt with, and you're, you're inviting the devil, you're giving the devil an opportunity to come in, as he would love to do, and wreak spiritual havoc. But let's turn that around and see this positively by dealing with sinful anger, and indeed by doing all that we're commanded here in all of these ways, clothing ourselves with Christ We have this powerful defense against the evil one. We're submitting to God, and what are we promised by James? Submit to God, resist the devil, and what will he do? He will flee from you as you draw near to God, and he draws near to you, and you're even clothed with him. We we, we ought to see this as powerful, powerful armor. This is like that messianic armor, which we're going to learn about in uh, chapter 6 powerful. Brothers and sisters, this is grace. Uh, Take up the armor of God in this way. Clothe yourselves in these things. Fight the good fight of the faith. Put off the old. Put on the new. Walk in love, and and you'll be walking in the newness of that new creation of which God has made you part in uniting you to Christ. May God give us grace to do just that. Let's pray together. Lord, these are wonderful commandments. These are indeed beautiful exposition of your law. And as we confessed earlier, these would only condemn us but for the grace of Christ. How we praise you for the one who died, that our sins would be forgiven. How we praise you for the one whose spirit is is transforming us, conforming us into the image of our Savior. And so, Lord, do that work in us more and more. Father, help us, we pray, to fix our eyes upon Christ and to see in his life, his death, uh, his resurrection, to, to see in him our new life with all of its power to forsake the devil as we trust in you. Help us then, Lord God, indeed, to live righteous lives in obedience to your commandments. Help us indeed to clothe ourselves in him and to love you as we love one another with your love So, Lord God, may we indeed resemble you, our Heavenly Father. May we shine as your beloved children for your glory in Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.